I'm sorry I had to cancel last night at the last minute. Um, I appreciate your coming back tonight. (laughs) I always think everyone's in here and there's always one more. Tonight what I'd like to talk about is a highly unusual and original topic of attachment or grasping. I'll say what that is. One of the things that it's said that the Buddha said to himself in that period when he was trying to decide whether to teach, as uh, I love this quote, he said, he was saying that the truth is so hard to discover, he said, because this generation relies on attachment. This generation relishes attachment, delights in attachment. It's hard for them to see the truth. So that describes us, at times, pretty well. And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is really quite specifically this quality of attachment, of grasping. And what I mean by grasping is that uh, when we talk about craving, it's compared to the, the mind inclines towards something. It's like groping in the dark to steal an object. Grasping is like, got it. You've really grabbed it. It's really taken a firm hold. In the chain of dependent origination, craving arises on contact with pleasant feeling when there's not mindfulness. Grasping is what develops in the next moment, and each moment of grasping strengthens the next. This just really grabbing a hold of and not being able to let go. So that cheery topic is what I would like to discuss tonight. And really, in in some ways, on quite a fine level, on a microscopic level, but I, I just want to share something that to me puts it, it helps put things in perspective. Um, a lot of times here, after some period of sitting, some weeks, as you've all been here now, and it's, it's really wonderful because we are working and seeing things on a very minute, very microscopic level. And I love being able to talk about For example, the arising of grasping as a moment-to-moment experience. But sometimes, often actually, people say after a period of practice, you know, it feels like it's so inward, that it's so self-involved, that that sometimes people say, you know, they start to feel disconnected or wondering if it's relevant, you know, sitting here obsessed about my attachment to, you know, having a certain seat in the cafeteria for example, when we look at what's really going on in the world. Well, the other night, there was a brief, maybe 20-minute um, special. With some film crews had gone to Somalia, and uh, it, it was quite affecting for me. They were filming and talking to people that were, I mean, really, they looked like they were going to die the next minute from starvation. Very real. Just talking to just hundreds of these people, women, children, men. And then they were also filming that, that the, um, the whole famine there is not caused by drought or natural conditions. 
it's caused by people's greed and delusion. And they could also film gangs of men with machine guns and anti-aircraft guns, and they're going around literally stealing the food and the blankets with guns, just ripping it away from starving women and children, and then selling it on the black market for money. You know, attacking the care warehouses, you know, with 50 machine guns. I mean, it's really amazing what's going on. And, um, and in the midst of it, lots of volunteers, many of them Westerners, just trying to help bring in the food, bring in some medical aid. It, it was very affecting to me. And it had the effect, in, in my heart anyway, not of thinking, oh, what are we doing here, you know, obsessing about our minute little problems, and this is going on. This going on, this is what happens when we don't understand the nature of attachment. And it runs wild and blinds us in a huge way. It leads to this kind of thing in the world, all over the world. And it's exaggerated, but the process isn't any different from how attachment or grasping arises in a moment of our experience, how it feeds itself when we're afraid of it or don't understand it. And so I, I really I feel quite deeply that what we're doing here is not irrelevant to that, but it's a very deep way of, of, of learning that peace and freedom is accessible, of how not to be blinded by grasping, and that that's really going to have a profound effect on anyone we come in contact with. I, I really feel so strongly the connection that in our willingness that everyone here has such a commitment to understand this process in themselves, to know what peace is, and that we really are doing it for all beings. You know, it's, it's not irrelevant. We're not isolated. And it was actually, I was thinking about this talk when I was watching that, and it just very strongly felt the connection. So I just want to put in perspective, you know, we're not... We're not just playing with mental ideas. What we're doing here is is very real. So, from the big perspective down to a much smaller perspective, to talk about this experience of attachment or grasping what it is. We've said it several times before In your experience, there's really only six things that happen. There's seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting, physical touch, mental experience. That's it. Six objects just coming over and over and over. It's amazing what a big deal we make about it. Any one of these six sense objects that arise, you know, there's contact, there's the eye, there's uh, an, a sight object, there's eye consciousness, contact, feeling. If the feeling's pleasant, there can be craving. If it's unpleasant, aversion. And the next moment, if there's mindfulness, if there's sati in that moment, then with the sati we understand the nature of the craving, the nature of the object of craving. <clears throat> in a way, we see its impermanence. We know it's ephemeral, non-satisfying nature. Wisdom arises in that moment, and the craving dissipates. 
And that moment might seem like nothing special. Many, many moments like that in our life on this retreat. But when the sati's not there, when the wisdom doesn't arise in that moment of craving, the next moment that's conditioned is one of grasping, that really grabbing hold of the experience. And that's what blinds us, where the mind gets fixated on a particular thing. There's something simple. There's a pleasant smell. We don't really notice the pleasantness. It's grasped at, and the mind can get fixated in some fantasy, for example, of food, and not really even noticing where that fixation began. This is the grasping that blinds us. This is from the Buddha. For some people, contact, the point where sense plus object meet each other, this point is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity. And because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize total calm. Really here, he's saying that because of understanding the nature of our experience, the craving ends, that we realize the total calm because of understanding. So that's really why I want to talk about this nature of this experience of attachment or grasping tonight, just hopefully to help us continue to look at it understand it. And through that understanding, we touch peace and calm that's always available quite naturally. We don't have to create anything. And of course, often we're not going to notice this right at the point of contact. Quite often we wake up far, far along in the experience of grasping. So perhaps there was a pleasant feeling of warmth, clinging, craving that feeling, and then gets into clinging, and the next thing you know, you're in a long extended fantasy about a vacation in the tropics, what you're going to do when you leave here, and on and on and on, really lost in it. You can see how it's blinding, but no sense of what's happening here, no appreciation for what's happening in the moment. And when we wake up, it's even worse to wake back up in Massachusetts when you've been hanging out in Bali for the last 10 minutes. (laughs) So we talked about that when we talk about craving, how blinding it is. I I used that quotation before, when a pickpocket sees a saint, the pickpocket only sees the saint's pockets. The blinding quality of grasping. This is the Buddha again. There are many, many kinds of suffering in the world, and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better, 
I like this. She or he gives ways to gives way to this grasping and slow and dull goes through one misery after another. He doesn't try to sugarcoat things. So do not create this misery for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering begins and develops in attachment. See, over and over, he doesn't say hate it, fear it, get rid of it, pretend it's not happening. He's saying, use your wisdom. See how suffering begins and develops in attachment. It says, this is a Thich Nhat Hanh commenting on the Satipatthana Sutta, where it says, when the mind is desiring something, one is aware. My mind is desiring. It's very simple. You don't have to be afraid of it. You're simply aware. My mind is desiring. His commentary, I read this the other night in relation to something else. In identifying the mind of desire, in observing the nature of that mind and the nature of the object of desire, we will see the impermanence, the selflessness, and the interdependence of it, and we will no longer be dominated by that mind. The attachment itself is ephemeral, has no inherent nature, arises because of conditions and ceases when those conditions change. With wisdom, with mindfulness, we see this and we can see through the attachment to the peace that the attachment blinds us to. So on an experiential level, how can we experience the nature of grasping? I love watching this happen in a sitting unless I'm in a really judgmental frame of mind because it's so interesting where we're sitting or walking or anything but it's easier to observe in sitting relatively calmly appearances are arising and passing there's hearing and seeing and thinking and sensation and the breath coming and going there's that sense of open spacious awareness it's peaceful it's calm no appearance is a particular problem And suddenly, out of this flow of changing perception, one perception arises. Oh, the breath should be clearer, a thought. And that particular perception, the mind inclines to it and grasps. It's like almost like a physical contraction in that moment. It can really, I can anyway, feel as if the consciousness, which has been open and spacious as the sky, suddenly becomes as contracted and small and hard as a little pebble around this thought. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be a thought. I'm just choosing that. The breath should be clearer. Or I wonder what's for lunch. Or I want to hear that sound again. Whatever it happens to be. And in that contraction... The mind is unbalanced. Almost physically, the body could feel unbalanced. Sense of solidification. And that one isolation and grasping and identification not seen leads to a whole flow of constructs and story and endless suffering. In that moment of the consciousness contracting, 
there's immediate separation. There's immediate sense of me or self and other, the object grasped. Immediately there's a sense of there's a problem, where before there was no problem. A simple example, if you've experienced the VR phenomenon, you know, Vipassana romance, and you're just simply walking outside, minding your own business, lifting, moving, placing, noticing, hearing, smelling, feeling, and suddenly there's a sight. This person walks by, but the experience is simply seeing, and it's pleasant, and that's not noticed, and the craving arises, and there's a strong grasping. What is the experience in that moment? Where things have been quite peaceful, there's such a sense of self and other. A whole construct begins of me and them and what I want and what do they think about me and what do I think about them. I wish all these other people were here in the way and everything has become constricted. It's extremely unpleasant and it, it can really feel like a prison. And one moment of grasping not noticed leads into stronger and stronger and stronger grasping to get rid of the grasping, trying to tell ourselves to stop it. It just goes on and on and on. Contrast that with the same kind of walking outside when the mind is clear, simply noticing the sensations, noticing the sounds, clarity, sense of peace, where there's such an exquisite appreciation of whatever of just the sense of the foot lifting, of a little caterpillar going across the driveway, of the sound of the leaves. And things are so vivid and it's so exquisitely peaceful. What's the difference? It's simply that the mind, the consciousness, is free from attachment or aversion, really two sides of the same thing, in that moment. It's not a peace that's created. It's that the attachment is so blinding that we can't recognize or touch this peace which is always present here and now. It's always what is true and accessible. It's the attachment, it's the grasping that blinds us to this. It's attachment that gets us thinking we have to do something special to know what it is to be peaceful, to be free, when really it's always available. It's the absence of being caught in attachment itself. It's not the situation. So here I will, I'm dredging up an old story that I haven't told for a few years, but it's a good grasping story about the difference between when grasping is present and when it's not. A few years ago, I was in a relationship with a man who was living in England. And I I was working here, and I'd gone over there for a week to visit. It was one of these special week-long tickets that you can't change, and you can't, uh, if you miss it, you just lose the money. Plus, I had to be back here. So we were uh, in London the night before my flight, and he doesn't know London. Neither of us knew London. He's, He's American. And we were staying at a friend's apartment, but the friends were away, so we didn't have anyone around who could help us. 
And we get up in the morning, it's all fine, I'm getting ready to call a taxi to go to the train to the airport, no problem. And he guessed it in his mind that he really wants to drive me to the airport so we can have more time together, right? And he really got it in his mind. It was really very strong grasping. And I was saying, well, you know, you don't know the way, I don't know the way, and it's really easy, you know. And, and we spent the next hour when we could have been enjoying each other's company arguing about this. <laughs> and finally, I just gave up. His just so strong, he could really see the grasping quality and said, okay, now, of course, it's late because we spent all this time arguing. And the only map we had is, is one of these London A to Z, which has like a page. It's like, you know, pages are like a page for each block or something. Very detailed, but if you don't know how to get from A to Y, it really doesn't help to have all these pages in between because you don't know which. So that's what we had, and we're trying to figure out how to go. We're in the car, and I'm looking at the map, and I get on this street, and then I have, oh, up here, and by the time I'd find it, we'd be off of the next map already. And it, we were really quite late. I was, now, I was really grasping. I have to make this plane. That was the thought in my mind, totally grasped onto. This time together was really pleasant, I can tell you. And so I was wildly looking through this. He was driving like a maniac. We finally got on the right motorway and got partway out, and we hit a total dead stop traffic jam. And neither of us knew if we'd gotten off there. We had no idea where to go to take a shortcut. And I was in a total frenzy, just totally gone in this grasping, really suffering. And it suddenly just, when we hit this traffic jam, it all blew up in a bubble, and I thought, oh, I'm going to miss the plane. And it really hit, and the whole grasping just dissipated. It was kind of like confronted with the facts, there was nothing to grasp. It completely dissipated, and in an instant, I was quite relaxed. It's looking around, going, oh, look at all these cars. Well, I never missed a plane internationally. It was, I was quite in a pleasant space again. Nothing had changed except the grasping had gone away. And all the suffering wasn't about missing the plane or he having a different idea from me. It was because of the grasping in the mind that blinded me to anything else. Well, anyway, to go on, I ended up not missing the plane. I used to not say this, but then people would really ask me the next day what happened. We got to the airport with like 10 minutes to meet the plane, and then all the grasping came back. Everybody was in my way. I like, ran to the head of the immigration line, butted myself in line, ran to the plane. I was the last one on. They shut the doors, and we sat there for 45 minutes. <laughs> this is life. But it was such a clear experience of it's not the situation that's suffering. It's the grasping. <laughs> I saw this guy uh, a year or so ago, and out of nowhere, I don't know why, he said, remember our ride to the airport? And I said, yeah, I used it in a Dharma talk. He said, well, do you tell my side? (laughs) So I'm probably not telling his side. But when we begin to investigate the nature of attachment of grasping in this way, for one thing, it's fascinating. But for another, we can't help but see how often it arises and how easily the mind is seduced. 
And so I just want to say about this is the importance of patience and equanimity and non-judging. We're here to explore, to discover, not to judge ourselves for what we're seeing because it's, it's the nature of our human condition. We're all in this together. There's a few areas that they talk about where I find it helpful to, to help me identify this process of attachment where we so easily get lost in it. They traditionally list four. I'm really only going to talk about two tonight, I think. But the first kind of realm of grasping they talk about is uh, the obvious one of sense pleasures. This, <laughs> I'm into the real Theravada descriptions tonight. This is a definition of sense pleasure grasping by Lady Sayadaw, who was a, a Burmese meditation master from the early century, this century early. One definition of it, laying a firm hold on. It implies the inability to shake off a thing, even after experiencing great pain due to it and perceiving its many harmful consequences. This is really, to me, this is one description of grasping at sense pleasures. I mean, just a little thing, like I sit down and start eating ice cream and keep going till I finish the carton. I know that this is having a painful effect on me in the here and now. And the grasping just keeps feeding on itself if I don't stop to look at it. Sense pleasure. We do this so easily. It's like, you know, the story of Nasruddin where he's sitting there eating a whole basket of hot chilies and tears are just pouring down his face. And someone comes along and says, what are you doing that for? He says, well, I'm waiting for a sweet one. And we keep doing that. (laughs) Well, I've done this 100,000 times and it hurt, but maybe this time it's really going to make me happy. I just keep coming back to, in my mind, there's pleasant sights, there's pleasant smells, there's pleasant sounds, there's pleasant touch, there's pleasant taste, there's pleasant mental objects, and that's it. So what? Why do we keep needing new ones? But we do. Once I went to Upandita complaining about something that was going on in my practice, and he just said to me, so what do you want? Different things to note? <laughs> it just really reduced it. I said, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's all it is. <laughs> what difference does it make? <laughs> the Buddhist spoke often about... Um, very graphically, I'm not going to get so graphic, about the perils of sense pleasures. Some of the, the less, the more accessible ones are, they're dangerous because they're like a dream. When you wake up, they're gone. Or it's something that's borrowed. You just start to get into it and the owner takes it back. He said, but that the danger, the perils, we want to emphasize, it's not saying that pleasant sense experience is bad or that we have to be afraid of it. And uh, he went through, as you know, very extreme asceticism, and that was not what he's advocating. He's advocating the middle way. But I think it's important for us to really notice what the peril, what the danger is of sense pleasure. And it's not the sense pleasantness itself, 
But it's simply that the tendency to grasp is so strong. And as I said, the, the, the idea that somehow this one is going to do it is so seductive that we so easily get lost. And that's dangerous to us because, as I just said before, in that getting lost, in the grasping, as it strengthens itself, it keeps us looking in the wrong direction for peace. You know, we're looking and waiting for that sweet one instead of seeing that peace is available right now if we'd stop looking so hard. So I think one of the reasons we don't get it is in our day-to-day life, we don't really look that hard, you know, and our culture especially, but all, all cultures have in some way, just, we're just bombarded with opportunities for pleasant sensory experience. And as soon as one sight doesn't do it, we can go to another one. As soon as one taste doesn't do it, we can go to a pleasant feeling or a pleasant sound. And you can come and sit here and just go on endlessly into pleasant thoughts. So if we don't look, somehow the rapidity of the movement hides the fact that the search itself is the suffering. You know, it hides the dukkha, the same as we say when you move our body. It hides the unsatisfactoriness of the sense the body starts to hurt. On retreat, it's really helpful. I think the simplification is really helpful because the possibility of sense pleasure is so amazingly reduced. This is a kind of a a choice of renunciation. And the mind might go crazy at first. You know, the first week is really hard. The mind's just kind of fighting and wanting more sense things and more things to do. And then it settles down. And the renunciation, the simplicity, helps us to look. Because what do we see when the mind settles down? The grasping doesn't get any less. It just changes its object. Where before we were grasping for something really important, like you know your your husband or your wife or your children or your cats or something really major in life, and now it's down to an orange instead of an apple. But the strength of the grasping is no different. This is what's scary. That <laughs> it can be for anything. But the other side of the simplicity of retreat is because I find that the object of our attachment can be so greatly reduced, almost to the point of the absurd, but we can't hide from the intensity of the attachment. It really makes us look, because at some point or other we all wake up and go, why have I spent half a day filled with craving and anger because I had to sit in a different seat than usual. And we all do it. And so the retreat is a wonderful opportunity to really notice what's going on. When you're caught in grasping, notice what is it arising from. You can trace it back and see it's, it's coming from one simple sense experience, a sight or a sound or a feeling or a thought that this simple contact has given rise to this whole series of grasping moments. And that's fascinating to me. 
And the other thing we can do is to know that when we're really gripped with attachment, we don't have to do anything about it. Our whole life is spent doing something to get out of that feeling. Here we can see, oh, I don't have to avoid this. I can just sit here. I can just stand here. I can just lie here. Whatever's going on when we notice it. And really bring awareness to the process itself. To see how one moment of grasping, when we're not aware of it, really feeds the next. And how much the strength of it grows through one moment conditioning the next. We can sit there and see how if we're just noticing, noticing with a calm, attentive awareness, sooner or later, that grasping, that attachment, dissipates by itself. And notice the experience when it's dissipated, because we see that the the peace, the happiness, that we thought we could get by attaining the object of grasping, when that grasping dissipates, that peace is right here. It's what we were looking for all along. When we meet and explore grasping with sati, it allows for the peace that's camouflaged by the grasping to again be acknowledged, recognized, touched. And that's a wonderful experience because it's the wisdom, it's the beginning of the wisdom that helps us know we don't have to spend our lives running around driven by this energy of grasping or craving. Sometimes I think that the peace, this peace of non-grasping is more subtle at first than the kind of intense gratification that might come from sense pleasures, any kind of sense pleasures. And it takes the, the quietness, the calmness of mind that you're all developing here to really appreciate how much more exquisite and subtle it is. But when we touch that, actually sense pleasures lose their pull. It's a kind of a natural renunciation. I remember one retreat where I'd been for weeks going through all this kind of grief about the end of a relation. Oh, actually, it's that same guy. That <laughs> <laughs> Even though I knew I didn't want to be in it anymore. Going through, going through, going through. And then it just got into that, that place of non-grasping that is so peaceful and lovely and just calm. And at some point, the thought of sexuality came up, and it was totally unappealing. Just really gross compared to the, the uh, I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but like gross compared to subtle. In, in comparison to that, that calmness, that peace of equanimity, we don't give ourselves the chance to recognize that a lot in our daily life. Here, you're all touching moments of that over and over. Please recognize them, acknowledge them when they're happening. Uh, One other thing um, that I think lends to the seductive quality of grasping at sense pleasures is that when we're not examining craving, as the Buddha said, there's almost a sense of pleasantness. He says craving accompanied by delight You know, that feeling of just one more fantasy. It's so pleasant. There's a poem I love that to me evokes this feeling by a Japanese woman from about the year 1000 named Shikibu. 
in the ancient court of Japan. Although I try to hold the single thought of Buddha's teaching in my heart, I cannot help but hear the many crickets' voices calling as well. So we don't have to be afraid of the crickets' voices. We just have to recognize them for what they are. And we don't have to cultivate fear or aversion to pleasant sense experience. But we can see the difference between attachment and appreciation. The Buddha says, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. So with the clarity of non-grasping, we really can appreciate what is beautiful in the world. Knowing that it will pass, there's no need to strive after it. Suzuki Roshi says that renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of the world, but in accepting that they go away. When we see contact clearly, the nature of sense objects and sense desire, when we are open to exploring the quality of grasping and how it leads to suffering, this sense of natural renunciation arises quite spontaneously. The other area of attachment I want to talk about tonight is grasping an attachment to views and opinions, which is a really interesting one to me. The Buddha speaks about it quite a lot. That could be described as the tendency of mind to think, this alone is true, everything else is false. Unfortunately, we don't usually think it quite so clearly, so we're not so aware there's a view forming. But any viewer opinion like that, that we're grasping onto, we're not seeing as a view, is of course blinding. It limits our world. It limits the possibilities because we don't even let in the facts that don't fit into our view. We only perceive what fits. Remember when I talked about that basketball video and no one noticed the woman in white? It doesn't fit in with anyone's view of a basketball game that that should be happening. And so we limit the possibilities of what can be perceived, of what we can know about life. And we see this everywhere. Such (coughs) suffering is created by this attachment to views, by holding these views to be some kind of absolute truth. Right now, you're lucky you're missing it, the presidential debates that have been going on. It's really been something to watch. Um, there's no sense debate is a joke there's no sense that there's any kind of open communication happening each person gets up and lays out their views the other person gets up and lays out their views there's no sense of meeting there's no sense of actually hearing there's such a rigid clash people go to war about such differences of views of holding on to such an idea When one is listening without subscribing 
to any of the views particularly. What one hears or what I hear is they don't sound very different. You know, what are they fighting about? There's much more agreement than there is disagreement, but it turns into this rigid conflict. And we can all see that in ourselves. Well, I shouldn't use such non-provisional language. Most of us can probably see at some time the way that we are rabidly attached to some opinion that we have, such that if it's challenged, we get really angry or frightened. You know, And it can be about anything, about politics, about the environment, about our spirituality, about religion, about medical things. And we'll hold on to our view in spite of the evidence, you know, it gives us some kind of security. One example, and I'm bringing this one up on purpose, because I don't know if it's controversial, but it just might touch things in people. But I read a book recently uh, going through the history of the discovery of AIDS and the first few years of how it developed in this country. Well, you know, in the gay community and the other parts of the country and how the medical establishment reacted, how the government reacted, how the newspapers reacted, how the blood banks reacted. And it's so interesting because all of the different groups had their own particular views that they were grasping onto and protecting much more strongly than wanting to listen to the evidence that was coming out. So the government didn't want to spend money on it, didn't want to hear it was a crisis and, and basically views about it's, it's only gay people and Haitians, we don't need to worry about it. The media in a way treated it the same way. The doctors were squabbling amongst themselves about whether it was true or what wasn't or, or who's, who was going to get the credit. So for example, the discovery of the virus wasn't really talked about in the American media for a year because it was discovered by some French people and the Americans wanted the credit, for example. The gay community, a lot of them didn't want to hear about how it was spread through sexual activity because of the view that they were, being, they were just coming into a sense of sexual freedom and not wanting to be told how to behave because it was moralistic. And just a lot of fighting within the gay community and just on and on and on that everybody involved, the blood banks didn't want to hear that it was contagious and kept on putting out the blood for some time after the facts were really out. It's really, it's horrendous. But it was fascinating to me because there was everybody who was at all involved was holding on to some kind of view. And in the meantime, a crisis develops. I thought, this is how we are. You know, there's none of us who are outside of that. But that our views are more important when we're holding on to them than knowing the truth. And how it can just kind of stop your mind how strange or unsettling it is when we come up against some kind of evidence that we can't ignore, that shakes a view that we don't know we have, that we're really grasping. A friend just told me this story. I like uh, uh, a Tibetan Lama, Lama Gendin, was giving a talk to quite a large group of people. And he was talking about, uh, in their language, Dewachin, or a pure land it's a place where one can be reborn, a, a happy realm, but it's a practice realm. Amitabha Buddha is there, 
and it's a great place to be reborn and practice and be happy. And he was going on and on and on about it, describing it in detail, all these tiny little details. And finally the people in the back of the room started to snicker, you know. And I was thinking, where is he coming off talking about all this, you know. He's really in delusion. And he just stopped and looked at them and said, well, you might not think I know what I'm talking about, but I've been there. And it just stopped. You know, everyone just kind of stopped. Oh, doesn't fit in with their view of what's possible or what's true. So can we just begin to notice a view as a view? That's all. Notice when grasping or attachment to a view is arising. And then we don't have to be so gripped by it then we can continue to be open for discovery, open to see what is true in this moment, what is actually happening, not colored by our views and opinions. One of the things the Buddha says about views a lot is how holding to views brings us into conflict, conflict with others, conflict with ourselves. Just talking to people this last week, I can see this happening so much. We all do it in practice. We set up a view and immediately grasp it and then start suffering because our practice does not match the view that we're holding on to. Anything that's said in the instructions, anything that's said in a talk, the mind just somehow, this particular line comes up, that grasping takes place. Right, that's what noting is supposed to be like. Right, that's what the breath is supposed to be like. This is what spacious awareness is supposed to be like. And it's not what my practice is like. And immediately there's comparison and suffering. And it's so, it's really, it's, it's funny in a sad kind of way to see how we create so much suffering for ourselves. Because people will come in and say, you know, I'm having too many emotions. Clearly my practice is no good. And the next person will say, I'm just not having any emotions. I must be suppressing. My practice is no good. And some will say, you know, I'm just too much on the breath. I don't have spacious awareness. My practice is no good. The next person will say, I'm hardly ever with the breath. I only have spacious awareness. My practice is no good. And we just take whatever form of view and immediately we're in conflict. This comparing mode, comparing is actually the quality of conceit or mana, I'm better than, less than, or equal to. But if we watch what the comparing's arising out of in our practice here, it's grasping at a particular view. So it's not to hate the view, but it's to see a view as a view, to explore it. I find it fascinating to do because I'll say, oh, that's the view of what practice is supposed to be like. Just relax. And the next minute, whatever starts happening in my mind goes, oh, now this is how it's supposed to be. And it might be five minutes or it might be five days before, oh, that's another view. Okay, see through it. It's from Nisargadatta Maharaj. The state of craving for anything blocks all deeper experience. Nothing of value can happen to a mind that knows exactly what it wants. (laughs) Because nothing the mind can visualize and want is of much value.
this moment-to-moment mindfulness, just pure being with present experience, is a constant challenge to our unacknowledged views. And I think that's one of the reasons it can be so difficult. For really noticing what's happening moment-to-moment, it doesn't fit, or rarely, our ideas about what's supposed to be happening. When we're in a struggle like that, just check and see, is there a view here? Is there grasping? It's not to say that views are bad or opinions are wrong. We need them in life in order to vote. You know, we need to have a view and an opinion. But we need to know that that's what it is and not hold it as the absolute truth. You know, if, if I'm going to go and, you know, if, if I felt my vote was the absolute truth, I would have had to commit suicide 20 years ago because no one I vote for ever wins. And it's to be able to hold it lightly, to use it. For example, one of the wonderful things about retreat is our views do start to break down. Our view of ourself as a solid body. Is that our experience? I defy anyone to actually look and say their experiences is I'm a solid separate body. And you see it breaking down like with a lot of the people being sick now. And you come in, your experience is a sensation here and an emotion there and a heaviness here. And a lot of times people can't put it together because the views, the concepts are falling away. And that's wonderful in retreat. That's what retreat's for. Now, out in life, sometimes we need to be able to put the concepts together and go, oh, I think I have the flu. You know, or I think I have bronchitis. I should go to a doctor. That's quite helpful to know that that's a view, that's an idea we've built up around certain sensations. So it's knowing how to use views and opinions, but not grasping, not clinging to them. The Buddha says, one who is freed does not concur and does not dispute with anyone. She or he employs the speech currently used in the world without misunderstanding it. That's not like license, that it doesn't matter what we do. It's like we use the speech currently used in the world, but without misunderstanding it to be other than a relative truth. If anything, it's not that nothing matters, it's that everything matters equally. And you've probably heard this before, the quotation from Padmasambhava, the great Tibetan saint, is, although my view is as spacious as the sky, my actions and respect for cause and effect are as fine as grains of flour. Nothing is too small to matter. But when it all matters equally, we're not caught, attached to some view that limits the possibilities, that limits our world. Because any view is limiting. There's two other areas of grasping. I'm not going to really go into them tonight. One is grasping at the idea of self. And, of course, we've talked about that a lot. I think Joseph's going to talk about it again. But just that underlying tendency to identify with any particular experience. Again, again, it's the same six experiences as uh, a permanent, lasting self, as me, as separate. 
And the other area is what's called rites and rituals. Or that's, it's really a view that by performing certain outward activities, we can bring ourselves to some state of perfection, you know, or just to freedom. And it's not denying method and technique, but it's basically the Zen saying of don't mistake the pointing finger for the moon. Or as the Buddha says, you use a raft across the river, but you don't carry the raft on your back after you get to the other shore. So it's not, not attached to rites and rituals as something that we need for freedom, but they certainly can be helpful means. So as I've been saying all this and really talking about the, the subtlety of this movement of grasping, and how easily we can get seduced by it, as we notice how often it arises, I'm really, my intention is not to be discouraging. I know at times, with this or with any tendency, when we start to notice it, and we suddenly it can be overwhelming. You know, it's like with anything we first see, it's like, oh, how did I miss this? So, for example, views, when I start tuning into it, it seems like I'm making a view a second, you know. I go, how did I miss this before? But it's, it's not to drift into discouragement or judgment or feeling that it's hopeless, because it's just the opposite. Remembering what I read before, the Buddha saying that the understanding of this is what opens us to truth, to peace, and the understandings from our investigation when we come to understand our sense activity, the stillness fills us with delight. We see just what contact does, and so our craving ends. In a moment where we really see that, in that moment, the craving ends. We're just talking moment to moment now. You don't have to project it into the whole rest of your life. But in that moment, There's a natural renunciation, and a moment's enough. In that moment when we see what contact does, when we see the suffering of craving, the ephemeral nature of whatever we're craving, it's gone in that moment. The suffering is gone. And in that moment of peace, you know, we can really recognize with clarity our essential nature, that kind of vivid, whole, peaceful quality. As the third Zen patriarch says, it's perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. That moment of vivid presentness, nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. What is there to cling to? It doesn't make any sense. And we don't uproot it in that moment by hating ourselves or by judging it or by pretending we don't see it, but by our deep willingness to turn around and explore the process and the seeing and the understanding, the grasping withers. It just doesn't have the energy to keep going. And the peace that we're looking for, we find is already here and never was anywhere else. Grasping arises, it grips our heart because of ignorance. 
When grasping is present, we're not seeing what's true. We're somehow, through ignorance, seeing the six sense experiences as something else, as something more. There's a Tibetan saying that attachment puts feathers on the object. We somehow color it all up. And in the grasping, we think it's going to give us some peace, some happiness that it never can do. When we're not blinded by grasping, this peace, this happiness is so vividly recognizable that we wonder how we missed it all these years. And of course, the next moment, you know, that's how it goes. That's why one moment, one moment, one moment. So when we know for ourselves how suffering begins and develops in attachment, we know all we need to know, to know the nature of freedom, to know how to live in peace, and really honor that experience in yourself instead of saying, well, I did it this moment, but what about the next 35 years? This moment is all there is. There's one little stanza to close, again from the third Zen patriarch. When the heart exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When you really see the nature of contact and how clinging, grasping arises and the emptiness of it, Things cease to exist in the old way. They no longer offend. They no longer seduce. And it doesn't matter what's present. It does not have to hinder our knowing peace. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.